This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast a remarkable horseman who has left an indelible mark on both harness and thoroughbred racing in this country. Western Australia's Fred Kersley had a long and distinguished career in harness racing, which brought him 2,378 wins as a driver, 2,288 as a trainer. In more recent years, he has prepared 544 winners in the galloping world, including 11 Group 1s, most of those supplied by the wonderful Northerly. Fred is a third-generation horse trainer whose father and grandfather also excelled in the harness racing sport. I was tickled pink to catch up with Fred at a carbine club luncheon in Perth recently. I was very quick to ask if he would do me the honour of joining me on the podcast. He graciously accepted, and here he is. Good day, Fred Kersley. G'day, Johnny Tap. Lovely to meet you and uh, have a chat. Fred, few realise that your family were originally based in South Australia, but your grandfather changed all of that when he sent his eldest son with a couple of horses by ship to WA and the rest of the family travelled to Perth in an old Buick car and not all that reliable either. Not all that reliable on a gravel road in those days across the Nullarbor, so it was a... Quite a trip for the family, and Frank was on board with a couple of uh, couple of horses uh, on the ships, which you don't ship them around much anymore. They fly. Mm. Fred, what triggered your grandfather's desire to go to the West? He he, he must have had a, a, a bit of um, good fortune in as much as he, he had an attitude that um, West Australia was likely to be going ahead because there was some talk of race, or doing harness racing under lights. Mm. So he, 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 in his view, there was a better future for the family in Western Australia, and uh, as as it turned out, it, it's been a remarkable story for um, my uncle Frank, who I think was eleven times premier rangeman in Perth, and my my dad, who was three or four times, can't remember exactly, but mm. they had a lot of success over a lot of years, and um, so it was a good decision of uh, Pop to to. Decide to come to Perth. Yeah. F.J. Kersley was your grandfather. I read somewhere yes. that he was pretty tough on his boys and he had a cliche in those days that he used often, close enough is not good enough. That's quite right. He was a hard taskmaster, Pop, and um, he, he was very demanding, but he's very meticulous in uh, in everything he did. Near enough was not good enough. Mm. And he imprinted on all of the boys, uh, the four boys, and he had one daughter, uh, those exact principles that you talk about. And um, mm. i got to say I subscribe to that theory. Um, yeah. I'm not that good a people person, but I, uh, I'm pretty happy with the horses. I get along pretty good <laughs> with horses. What an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> What an understatement. You're pretty good with the horses. You won't get any arguments about that. Your That's dad was also Fred Kersley, and yes. he was very successful, as you said, winning several premierships in Perth. How yes. do you remember your dad as a mentor and as a horseman? Um, very fondly. Um, Pop, he's... 
didn't talk a lot, and um, when you ask questions, he said, you'll learn more if you watch. Um, he said, you need to learn by observing what other people do and take note of that. And as, as a matter of fact, I did that. I not only watched my uncle and my father, but I made a habit of watching Phil Coulson, who was mm. the leading younger horseman in those days and, and, and a wonderful horseman in, in his own right. Yeah. And so I not only uh, observed how other trainers trained, watched how the horses pulled up, watched how Phil Coulson um, presented his horses. And, um, and, you know, probably well, I did ask a lot of questions too, I must say that. Mm-hmm. But but I, I learned as much by observing what other people did. You paid your dad an enormous compliment right at the end of his career, Fred. You qualified two lovely horses, local product and James Eden, for the WA Pacing Cup final. You wanted to drive local product. You put your dad on James Eden, and at that time he'd been doing very little driving. Yeah, he's coming down to his tether. He was happy to give it away. Uh, he's starting to lose a bit of sight in one eye, and uh, mm. he knew his time had sort of come, but... Um, it was probably the most emotional moment in my career mm. was when I was able to put Pop on James Eden that night. He'd really saluted in a race that he hadn't been able to win mm. and always wanted to win. Yeah. And as um, fact of the matter is he had another drive for a horse, a minor horse called Stitching Time, in the last race on the program that night. Mm. And after Dad had won the, the, the Pacing Cup, um, I, uh, I went to the stewards and I asked if he could forego his last drive of that night. Mm. So that became his, the last race that he ever drove in and won the race that throughout his career he failed to win oh. and he paid, paid me the greatest compliment in his speech. Yes. Fred, you couldn't have written the script any better than the way it unfolded. No, it was a magic moment. It took you a long time to establish your own identity in harness racing and you were constantly being compared to your father and your uncle Frank, who was a brilliant horseman. Uh, were you conscious of it? Did it get up oh, the yeah. nose, so to speak? Oh, it drove me mad, John. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a couple of reasons. You know, I competed with the best of horsemen in those days and, and there were no junior concessions like you have a... a weight allowance for in the thoroughbred code and you have junior driver concessions now which gives you where horses drop a class and of course you've got the opportunity as mm. a young person but in my day you competed with the best on your own terms yeah and i reckon i did a 15-year apprenticeship um <laughs> you know which means you learn a lot and you do in your struggle yeah. I can remember a horse called Mel Arab. It's the first horse that I would get a drive on. He, the closest he ever got, he ran fourth twice. Yeah. And I was delighted that he <laughs> saluted the judge. Yeah. So I, in those times, I couldn't get a drive. Mm. Um, nobody rated me. Cromwell was he'll never be good, as good as his uncle or his father. And, um, mm. and you know, contributed to the 15 y- years of Struggle Street. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it imprinted on me and, um, you know, you win some big races and it's great, but you'll win any race and it's, and it's really good. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just, you take nothing for granted and, and you, you appreciate small races, uh, low stake races, but if, if you can produce that horse in that grade to win a race, well, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's nearly as good as winning any race. Clearly, they reach a race that give you a lot more publicity and everything else, but the satisfaction factor yeah. of producing that horse who's got limited ability to win a race is it, yeah. it is very – it gives me great pleasure. Very special. Well, Fred, the satisfaction factor, as you put it, must have been very high years later when you finished up winning 16 trainers' premierships and I think it might have been 17 or 18 drivers. That's correct. And, um, you know, the, the, the publicity around that was – Kenny Cassell's a great mate of mine, a very good journalist. He's still very very much into harness racing. I, I won my first premiership. The headline came out, well, Fred Kersley's finally won a premiership, but he, he'll never be as good as his uncle. So, <laughs> I probably thought he was right. Yeah. But – as luck would have it, and with perseverance and dedication, uh, I was able to do that. Your good friend, Alan Parker, who yeah. is, can only be classified as an historian, has given me – he's got a terrific database on harness racing, and you'll be interested in these figures. I think I mentioned earlier you won 2,378 on all tracks as a trainer. Yes. 1,735 of them Metro, and you won 87 at Group 1, 2, and 3 level. Yeah, well said. Alan would know more about me than I know about myself, but he's he's done a great job for for racing in as much as he's the first one that I recall with being a historian where he recorded the facts and put them down, and he's kept these records going back as as long as you've just mentioned. Mm. And he's still actively involved as a committee member of the WATA. But, I mean, the, you know, I think it's good to have that record, um, you know, available not only for myself but guys like Chris Lewis who um, is champion of South Australian person who came again, came to Perth and does very well, still driving at the top level right here. But mm. I give a lot of credit to Alan Parker in a nutshell for his um, – you know, dedication to the the harness racing sport with these statistical records. Yep. He also gave me your training stats, 2,288 training wins, 1,565 of those in town, and a total of 59 at Group 1, 2 and 3 level, just in case you were not aware of those figures. I certainly wasn't. Well, I knew I had a good number up, but um, mm. as I say, um, the 15-year apprenticeship must have paid dividends in the end, and I'd encourage <laughs> anyone who's – and you do it in, in racing on both sides, in both codes. It's not easy, and if you persevere and if you're dedicated – I reckon you still get it. You still can do it. Well, a lot of young and aspiring horsemen will be taking heed of your words, Fred. I'm sure. Now, there's one very significant point about those stats. For most of that time, you only had two meetings a week, and quite often no more than six or seven races on the program. Yes, that's one of the things that sort of lost as time goes by. Being the days where the proliferation of racing with the 10 race programs so cost a park at the minute and uh, as many as you can get in the country 
you know, up to eight. Um, so the opportunities are greater, and you know, it's the uh, the almighty dollar driven by the TAB mm. that we have this, um, you know, volume of races that they're able to produce. Now, that may change a little bit because the horse population numbers are going down a little bit in modern times. But um, I, I, I take some satisfaction from the fact that in as you just mentioned there weren't the number of race meetings or the number of races so mm-hmm. uh, i'm pretty proud of that fact and of course the the, the drivers were of these modern days they will win more races and uh, and they do a great job because it's demanding the number of races you, the number of meetings you travel up to it's a, mm-hmm. it's a full-time business you really work hard fred you said something a few minutes back about never taking anything for granted in this game. Here is a classic example of that. One of your very early Metropolitan winners might have been your first. I think it was a horse called Bo Travis. Oh, yeah. You were on top of the world. You were on cloud 11, thinking this is only the beginning. I'll get a treble next week. I'll get four the week after. You didn't win another race for 13 months. You wouldn't believe it possible. I, I didn't – look, I thought I'd made it, John. I thought after this 15-year apprenticeship, I'd won West Australia's greatest race. I thought, like, finally I've made it. I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm on my way. And it was another 13 months before I could win another race. <laughs> so the, the reality of racing <laughs> and the degree of difficulty kicked in. I, yeah. And that's why I say any, any race anywhere, um, you just take it and appreciate it. Mm. Fred, you were the second rangeman in Western Australian trotting history to win more than 100 in a season. You did that five times in subsequent Mm. years, and your Mm -hmm. best was 148. Yeah. Um, John, you know more about me than I know about myself, (laughs) but I've got to say, uh, yes, and they were busy times because we travelled to places like Canada and 100 miles from Perth, we were doing Pinjarra, Bunbury, Wagen and all of those places around the, you know, far, a lot of travel. As they do, in, i got to say, in other states, Victoria in particular, they're not frightened to travel. Mm. Um, but it, 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 it's telling. I mean, it's early mornings and in, in night racing in harness, you'd be lucky to get home at midnight. And in, in those days, we had to get up before the sun to, to beat the shadows because, as you would well know, mm. horses uh, early days become shadow jumpers and that sort of thing. Many have forgotten that you were the original trainer of the champion Pure Steel, who finished up winning a Miracle Mile, three Hunter Cups, four WA Pacing Cups, you won the derby with him and you trained and drove him in the 1976 Adelaide Inter-Dominion. He won a hit and he was very unlucky in the final, finishing second to Car Clue. You lost the horse. A massive yep. kick in the guts. Yeah, it was tough to take at the time. Um, the interesting thing about Pure Steel, I mean, he's acknowledged across Australasia has been a great horse. Now, I think the fastest time he ever recorded was about 158, which would be by today's standards fairly moderate. Mm. And it's probably not well known that, and he was a very difficult horse as a youngster to train. And his first start in a race was down at Pinjarra, and he, he used to, he's a bad knee, knee knocker. He used to hit his knees. Too much, too mm. bad. Mm. So he's making, he's trying to make a run down the back straight and he, he mixed his gait and fell. Mm. 
Mm. And um, so from a very humble beginning for him, he uh, he fell. He came, that was a two-year-old. He came back as a three-year-old. He, he raced very well, good enough for us to take into Adelaide for the end of the menu. We were aiming pretty high because I think he'd had less than 12 starts. Mm. Uh, I remember he won the 1,800-metre heat, I think, uh, midway through the series. And, and he was a very promising horse. He had, you know, sort of a, a presence about him. Probably could have won the final, but he drew one in a standing start, just scrambled away, finished settling midfield, and everyone was conscious, all the other drivers, of where it was pure steel in the run, and of course, they're not going to let you loose. Mm. Finally, I got clear late, but Chris Lewis, who drove car clue, had led the field and dictated, and um, I couldn't really, man, he was getting home in a bit of a hurry, and uh, but mm. the post came too quick. Mm. So subsequently, um, there was a bit of unhappiness from the owner, Russell Roberts, at that time, and uh, the the, uh, the atmosphere was tense, would be fair to say, but the truth of the matter is that I continued to train Russell's horses for another month or six weeks after that. Pierce Steele came home and spelled, mm. but I still trained James Eden and quite a few other horses for Russell for a period of time. Mm. But the um, the relationship was fractured, and uh, in the end of the day, what brought it to a head? So WATA ran an invitation drivers race in um, uh, in Perth for an invited arrangement from all across Australia, and um, the, the club rang me. They had about eight, eight drivers across here to, to take part in this series, the invitation drivers, and I put. Uh, they rang me and said, "Look, we're short of horses. Fred, can you help?" I said, oh, let me think about him. James Eden, he's okay. He could go round. So I entered him for the race, and I made a bit of a mistake. I never told, I never rang Russell and said, this is what I'm doing, because it happened pretty quickly mm-hmm. when they when they called me. So he come to acceptance, so I'm in a bit of a panic. Yeah. So as happens, uh, I drew to drive a horse called Sir Alex, and Johnny Benskin uh, drew to drive James Eden. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, to put it in not such polite language, Russell cracked the shits and said he didn't want Johnny, Johnny Benskin to drive the horse. <laughs> I said, right. I said, what I'll do is I'll stand down. Johnny can drive Sir Alex. And I said, Russell, where are you now? He said, I'm at the farm. I said, well, stay there because I'm going to pick the horse up and I'm bringing him home to you. Mm. And I, I had three or four horses. I got my brother to pick me up. I went to the barrier draw. Uh, for that particular race, and the horses went on to Russell's, Russell's place, and that was the end of the relationship. You sacked yourself. Well, I, I sacked Russell after he sacked me, mm. of pure steel. So an, an unhappy ending to what was a very good relationship because we, we had great success together, the pair of us, with local product, James Eden, horses like Pure Steel, Exadios. Yeah, we, we had a really good relationship. But that um, getting beaten on Pure Steel did uh, end that story in its own way, although it fair to say it didn't happen on that night. It took a little while. Fred Kersley, we'll pause for a moment or two on the podcast for this important break. Back in a moment. 
2019 English Premier Yearling Sale will be held at Oakland's Junction in Melbourne where 786 lots have been catalogued for four days of selling between the 3rd and the 6th of March. The Premier Sale has produced some of Australia's best performers in the last year, including Group 1 winning two-year-olds written by and Seabrook, four-time Group 1 winner Santa Anna Lane and the exciting three-year-old Ring-a-Ding-Ding. The 2019 Premier Catalogue is bursting with quality and features siblings to 73 stakes winners and eight Group 1 winners, including Boom Time, Shocking, Pinker Pinker and Seabrook. The sale will be held at a new look Oakland's complex, which is undergoing an $8 million refurbishment, making it one of the best auction houses in the world. The dates again, March 3rd to March 6th, and catalogues are available online at english.com.au or in hard copy for the 2019 Premier Yearling Sale. My guest is champion horseman Fred Kersley a champion in two fields, standard bred and thoroughbred. To this day, you sing the praises of a horse called Classic Gary, a brilliant racehorse and later a great sire and a well-proven sire of brood mares. Gee, a lot of good horses have come from Classic Gary mares. Freddie was a very fast horse. He was he was quick. He was you know had fifty four against him won fifty four in those days, which was outstanding. He did that in a time trial on the old Gloucester Park before it became a half mile track, mm. alone and unassisted. He he recorded a time of I think fifty four point nine, um, and uh, he was a cla- classic. Gary, really, you could describe him. He was a classic looking horse. He was like more like a thoroughbred than a standard bred, mm. um, and he had that just elite. Um, attitude, your speed, you know, all of the things you liked in a horse. And he passed it on to his progeny, but gee, he was a quick horse. I think we should mention a horse called Willow Rack. You were very fond of him. He may have been the one to launch your career. I think you're right, John. Um, he was a horse that uh, had. Well, he was about 17 hands high and he'd had um, a record of smashing sulkies and whatever else. He was not the best behaved horse and he spent about 18 months in the paddock because no one wanted him. And um, I got the opportunity to train him with the one instruction, I don't want you to start this horse unless you think you can win because we want to have a bet. took me a fair while. I reckon I spent five or six months on him and uh, I, I produced him one night he was back from 20s to 5 to 2 and got the money, got the job done. And I think that, as much as anything, um, brought my uh, training career to a, to a head, if you like, in as much as people acknowledge the ability and the and, and that Willowrack getting up in that race unexpectedly and then the following week he went down to Richmond Raceway and won again. So I do think that there was, there was a turning point in my training career where I started to get better horses, um, and I give a lot of credit to that old horse, Willowrack. He, he, he won the champion, but he, he was a champion in my eyes at that time. Salinger was one of those good ones that uh, followed uh, Willowrack. Salinger by, by Classic Gary and another one called Shandon about the same time. Mm. Again, very, very quick horses. Fred, there was a small but elite group of drivers for whom you had special admiration. 
back in that golden era. Can you just rattle them off for me again? When I started, there was uh, Leo Keys, Alan Woodworth, uh, obviously my, my uncle Frank, and uh, Maxie Johnson, uh, who very famously, him and Pop Johnson used to travel horse to the eastern states and they'd race in in the white harness and um, had horses like Red Shadow and others. Yeah. So it, it came out, I, I grew up in an era just after the war years when the horsemen were horsemen and the general public related to horses because that was where the bread cart came from, the milkman and the the ice cart. You know, people mm. did relate to horses more in those days than they do today where we're computer-orientated. Mm. So there were a lot of great horsemen, and I, I failed to mention some of the best of them, but... Um, Gee, there were some really good horsemen in those days. Jim Schrader was another. Jimmy Schrader. Lyle Lindo. Of mine. Lyle Lindo, another one. Mm. Jimmy Trader, he was unorthodox, but, God, he was hard to beat. He was just, he had a knack of winning. Mm. Very unorthodox horseman, but very effective. And Chris Lewis, of course, deserves special mention. You did mention him earlier in reference to Car Clue. Chris is well over the 5,000 mark career, uh, an outstanding effort, and uh, he seems as keen, as enthusiastic, and as good as ever. I was going to say, he's just, well, it's early. I mean, he's just, um, I think, race driving more than, he doesn't train a lot of horses, but he, he's an excellent driver. And how many times he grabbed me in the last stride? It reminds me of W. Pike at the Gallops right now. Mm. Um, Chris, an excellent, excellent driver with longevity. Your last drive at the trots was a winner, very fittingly, at Pinjarra. The horse was yeah. trained by the present-day leading galloping trainer, Grant Williams, yes. who obviously set the horse for the race for you to drive in your farewell appearance. I think you'd already announced your impending retirement. That's quite true. Now, Grant spent a bit of time working at the stables with me before he branched out in his own, and he and himself comes from a a family that's grown up with with racehorses. Uh, so Grant, as I, I said, I was, you know, getting to the stage where I thought I was losing an edge as a driver, John, to be quite honest. I, I was sort of trying to do a bit of harness and, and thoroughbreds at the same time, and I found it very demanding. And I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my edge as a driver. So I said, I'm, I'm about to give it away. And and uh, Grant said to me, before you go, he said, look, I got, I got one that I reckon it'll win. Mm -hmm. I want you to drive it for me down at Pinjar. So I accepted it. Of course I did. And um, to be quite honest, I probably tore it up that day, but it still won. It was just good enough to win. And I, so I stepped <laughs> out of the sulky on a winning note. Fred, what was, what was that expression? That's a new one. Tore it up. <laughs> well, pretty common when you, when you make a blue. Um, yeah, you, you, you can tear them up and so can the jockeys. The good thing, in my view, is you get off and you say to the connections, look, I got that wrong. Yeah. I tore it up. Yeah. yeah, it is a good thing, and it's uh, it's not all that common. Jim Cassidy was was one of the best. Um, Jimmy would kick his little feet out of the irons and he'd look down at the owners and the trainer and he'd say, not one of my best. 
And that's I, know, I like that frankness rather than come in and tell you a story that you look you look at the film and you think no that's not right. I I gave myself up plenty of times. Some I'd say sometimes I owe you one or I tore that up. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Be yeah. honest. Yeah. Fred, you represented your country in a world driving championship at home. Uh, it rotated around the states of Australia and to New Zealand. And getting towards the end, you were looking a big hope. Oh, look, I, I was going pretty good. I got through the all states of Australia well and I was leading the field. Um, got to the last race, drew very bad on a horse that just struggled, couldn't couldn't get around the bends very well. And uh, and Morris Henry, another great driver, um, he, he outpointed me in the end. I've got to say, I was disappointed. I'd love to have done it for, for West Australia. Uh, as much as myself. Uh, the fact is I didn't. I run second, um, but I did my best. On that note, we're going to close part one of our special podcast with Fred Kersley. Don't miss part two, in which Fred recalls the battle he had to wage to gain his thoroughbred trainer's licence. Monday, April 8th until Wednesday, April 10, 2019 are the dates for the Inglis Australian Easter Yearling Sale, the most important and influential yearling sale in this part of the world. While the final catalogue isn't released until January, it's shaping to be one of the best ever. There's a three-quarter brother to the Autumn Sun, a full brother to Merchant Navy, a half-brother to Shoals, a full brother to Brazen Bow, a three-quarter brother to Lankan Rupee, a full sister to John Snow, a half-brother to Unforgotten, a half-sister to Catchy, a half-brother to Dundeal, a half-brother to I Victory, a half-sister to She Will Reign, a three-quarter brother to Seamus Award, and a half-brother to Pino. Stallions with progeny in the sale are Schnitzel, Fastnet Rock, I Am Invincible, Reduce Choice, Sebring, Piero, and Written Tycoon. There's a strong international flavour with sires like Lord Canaloa, Deep Impact, Frankel and Tappet. There are 42 siblings to Group 1 winners and the progeny of 35 Group 1 winning mares. The preview magazine is available now and the final catalogue will be out in January. <laughs>